The book of Acts chapter 10, we are picking up where we left off in chapter 10 three weeks ago, here in verse 9. And if you were not with us, uh, the background uh, to where we are now in, in the narrative is that last time we saw a man named Cornelius, whose life, as we were told and we examined together, his life rose up as a memorial before the Lord because, his, his devotion to, because of his devotion to the Lord, even though he was a Gentile, was not a Jew, but because of his devotion, because of his prayers, his, his service to the poor, that life was so forceful that it rose up uh, as a memorial before the Lord. And so the Lord came to him, through, sent an angel to him rather, and said, send for Peter down at Joppa. And that's where we pick up the story here in verse 9. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. And this happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Now while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who is well (coughs) well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. The next day he rose and went away with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa accompanied him. And while on the following day they entered Caesarea, Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. And when Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter lifted him up, saying, Stand up, I too am a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many persons gathered. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. That is where we leave the reading. This is God's Word. Well, This morning, church, I have a simple question to ask you and then a challenge for you after we have gone through the text. The simple question is this. Have you ever had to change a doctrinal belief that has influenced your life such that changing it meant your whole day-to-day lived experience must change? There are many doctrines that if we hold to them, and then if we later have to change these doctrines, nothing much in our lives change. Our day-to-day lives continue on. Our Christianity is the same as before. If you believe, for example, that the proper way to pronounce the Lord's Old Testament covenant name is Yahweh and not Yahweh, 
and then somebody comes and corrects you and shows you, no, it's actually Yahweh. Well, if you change from calling him Yahweh to Yahweh, that changes nothing in your Christianity, does it? has no difference in your day-to-day life. It is just pronunciation of an old word. But there are doctrinal positions that are so crucial that to change them means your day-to-day life and what you have believed and the way that you even think about Christianity will no longer be the same. For example, many of you believed that as an evidence of your Christianity, you had to speak in tongues. And so you lived a life of faking it and speaking gibberish as a means to communicate with God, did you not? But then you saw that the Scriptures require no such nonsense. And and in fact, you saw that in the Scriptures, God requires you to speak to Him legibly and honestly, purely from the heart. And your life's practice changed. You were no longer trying to find and, and get this spiritual moment so that something comes out of your mouth. You now knew like the, that the Lord Jesus said, just pray to him, our Father who art in heaven. And did that not change your life? It brought relief, I hope, that you don't have to do that kind of spiritualization. Well, it is the same thing, that is what we're seeing in this text this morning, in the life of Peter. In the text in front of us, Peter is challenged by the Word of God with a doctrine that needs to change his entire outlook on what Christianity is and indeed his daily life and practice. Now change and adjusting to God's Word is the name of the game for Christians, isn't it? It's normally, that's, that's life. The Lord brings His Word and we are constantly challenged by His Word and the Lord pushes His Word up into our noses and in many ways we know that we signed up for a life of constant change. And so a key question for us is, how easy is it to change when Scripture confronts us? How easy is it to change? How much of a fight must there be before you bow the knee? How easy it is when confronted with what God wants that is different to what we want or perhaps to what we are used to, how easy is it for us to change our opinions and beliefs as we are told? This is what we're going to see in the life of Peter this morning. The text in front of us divides easily into two parts. First, there is a perplexing vision from verse 9 to 18. And second, there is the vision's explanation in verses 19 to 28. I had every intention of covering both the vision and its explanation today. But just in the vision, just in the first part, verses 9 to 18, there's so much for us to consider that instead, next week, we will look at the vision's explanation from verses 19 to 28 and so on. So just for today, our attention will be on verses 9 to 18, just the perplexing vision. So let's look together at the vision. The occasion of the vision is that it is, the, it is when the men that are coming from Cornelius, coming down, Uh, That 63-kilometer route from Caesarea, where Cornelius is, down to Joppa on the coast, going down that journey, and at that time, what's happening is that Peter is getting hungry. During the time of, of their travel, Peter is getting hungry, and he goes up to the roof to pray at the sixth hour. And that sixth hour is the hour of prayer. So they had generally about three hours of prayer And the sixth hour, which is our midday, our 12 o'clock in the middle of the day, was one of the hours of prayer. And so Peter goes up to the top of the roof there at Joppa in in, uh, Simon's house uh, to pray. And these two pieces of information, that Peter is hungry, number one, and number two, that it is the hour of prayer, set the stage for the vision. You'll see in the moment that those two pieces of information are crucial in understanding the vision. So what happens when he gets up there? Well, we're told here, he falls into a trance. 
And he sees the heavens open and something like a great sheet descending down by its four corners. And when you're trying to think about what this great sheet is, uh, commentators believe that because he's on the top of the roof, the Lord is using the image he would have seen. There's, there would be to, uh, top sheets on top of the roof that are straight and have four corners. And so the Lord is using the image that, that is around him in this vision. So it's just a, a sheet. Just think maybe just a, a zinc sheet coming down from heaven. And on this large sheet that is, a, that is a, a roof sheet, you have all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And of course... The, that's not the, the issue. The issue is what comes after that. The voice comes and says, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. And now notice Peter's response in verse, in verse 14. Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Peter is a devout Jew. And in, in the Jewish law, there's a whole section of this in Leviticus chapter 11 dealing with which animals a Jew who is faithful to God can eat and not eat. And in general, and this whole section of, 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 of uh, Leviticus 11 is very explicit and very specific about the animals that the Jews can and cannot eat. And generally, there were restrictions on land and on which land animals they could eat. Only those which chew the cud and, uh, and have parted cloves. And which sea animals they could eat. Only the sea animals with scales, which basically just means fish. Uh, and which birds they could, eat, they could eat. And specifically, we see in Leviticus 11 that reptiles were entirely and completely off limits. Uh, reptiles were not to be eaten by the people of the Lord. Anything that was like a lizard, a lizard is mentioned specifically, anything that is like a lizard, small or big, the people of God were not to eat them. But in this vision, look at what we're seeing. Look at the word that is used to describe the animals here in verse 12. In this sheet were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. While in Leviticus 11, there's all these restrictions on the food that they can eat. Here, there is no restriction on what Peter is being told to eat. Peter is hungry on the top of the roof at the hour of prayer. And, it is, and the, the voice comes from heaven and says, here's all of it. Whatever, whatever's on here, feel free to kill and eat. And so Peter, because he is a devout Jew, he responds, no ways, by no means. There is no hunger that will come to me that will cause me to break Old Testament law. I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. Now what do you think? What do you think about Peter's response? Is this a good response from Peter, do you think? Is this a neutral response from Peter? We, don't, we can't really judge it. It's just a response. Or is it a bad response from Peter? What do you think? When you, when you see this response, is this the right way for him to respond? Or is this the wrong way to respond when he's being told what to eat? Let me provide you with two categoric reasons why Peter is no good, very, Peter's response is no good, very bad, and should be condemned and not be repeated by us. Two reasons. I have more reasons, but for the sake of our time today, we're just going to look at two. First, the most decisive reason why Peter is wrong to respond to the, to the voice this way is this. The Lord Jesus had already settled the matter of whether or not food has any effect on a person's holiness. In the life, in his, no, in his teaching, while Peter was with the Lord Jesus for three and a half years, the Lord had categorically clarified that it is not what goes into a man that makes him unclean, but it is what comes out. Come with me and let's see this text in Mark chapter 7. Hold your place in, hold your place in Acts chapter 10. 
Let's look at Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7 and verse 14. The Lord Jesus here calls the people to him again and then he says to them, this is what the Lord Jesus says, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? And look at, look at the little, in the parentheses, look at the, the comment that Mark puts here. Thus Jesus declared every food clean. Verse 20, and he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they are what defile a person. The Lord Jesus has come, and he has explained true religion. Jesus says that there's no food that you can eat that defiles you. Feel free, have your KFC. Okay? Feel free. I know there are some banting people here, but feel free to have your bread. Okay? If you, you can stop eating the bread for weight loss purposes, but when you, when you, when you eat it, feel, don't worry. It does not defile your inner person. The kind of food you eat has nothing to do with how holy or how God-honoring you are. There's many people who have many restrictions on what they eat, but their lives will send them to an eternity of judgment. What you eat has nothing to do with holiness. And so Peter being proud here in Acts chapter 10 that he has never touched anything that is common or unclean is completely missing the point. The reality is that the Lord told him point blank twice. He said it in public. Do you see in verse 14? He said it in public. And then they asked him because it was so confusing apparently. And he said it again. Do you guys also don't understand that nothing goes in that can defile you? But Peter is still stuck in Leviticus 11 even after the law of Christ, which is a greater law, has been revealed. Peter is living on Old Testament commands in the New Testament time. The kingdom of God has been revealed that all these Levitical laws were teaching tools. They were not the goal, and Peter doesn't get it. Now, you might sit here and think, no, but Lelo, you, 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 you're being a bit harsh on Peter. Surely his confusion over the fact that certain foods weren't allowed in the past are now being allowed, certainly that would take time to understand. Certainly, I mean, this is how he grew up as a Jew. This is his whole life. This is what he knows. And then the Lord Jesus comes. I mean, three years of being with the Lord Jesus can't completely change what has been his life for perhaps 30 years. Surely, be, be a bit kind on Peter. And this is how I would respond to you. While I understand that objection, we must see and agree with the Lord Jesus' assessment on this. Well, I understand your objection that certain things are hard to grasp and, and certainly then to put into practice. I get that. But we must, you and I must agree with the Lord Jesus' assessment of this. This slowness to understand what God has revealed is a problem in Peter. It's not a neutral thing. Do you see how the Lord Jesus just in this text responds to them when they don't get it? Look at, look, look at again in, verse, in Mark 7 here, in verse, verse 18, he says, Then are you, also not, are you also without understanding? He had just said in verse 14, Everybody hear this and understand. And then his disciples are not getting it. And he says, you, Are you also not without understanding? Are you also blind to the truth? 
Do you not see what the reality is? And then he goes on, he says, Do you not see that what a man eats does not defile him? Are you so blind to understand true religion? This, this slowness to understand is not just a miscomprehension that, oh, I don't understand this doctrine. No, it shows something that's wrong in Peter. Something is wrong. He is holding on to certain things. He is stuck in a particular thing, and the Lord rebukes that. And this line of questioning by the Lord Jesus to the disciples happens over and over again. When the Lord Jesus rebukes his disciples for not getting something that God has clearly revealed. When, 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 the, when, the, when, when the Lord has revealed something often and then the, then the disciples don't get it, he says, how long must I be with you? You're slow to understand, slow of heart to believe. Why aren't you getting this? Have you not read? You find these, these, these things throughout the New Testament. And perhaps the biggest example of it is, is, is in Luke chapter 24, where Luke dedicates the, his entire thesis of the resurrection to the rebuke of the disciples. Because they did not get what God had clearly revealed. Do you remember how Luke chapter 24 goes? Let me give you a quick synopsis of how Luke 24 goes. Luke 24, the, 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 the women uh, come with spices to the grave of the Lord Jesus, wanting to, 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 to apply the spices because they couldn't, because he died, he was killed just before the Sabbath. So they arrive there and they find that the, the, the tomb is open and Jesus is not there. And they are perplexed and worried and confused. And listen to what the angel that is there, that finds them there in verse 7 of Luke 24 says to, says to the ladies, Why do you seek the living among the dead? The, 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 why, the, 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 the phrasing of this is a, is a rebuke. It's not a, a normal question. Hey, why are you searching a, a, for a, a living person among the dead? No, it's a rebuke. Why are you here? Why are you here? Do you not remember? He goes on to, he is not here, he has risen. Remember, he told you when he was with you that he will rise on the third day. Why are you here? It's a rebuke. And then the next story in Luke 24 is, all, is the road to Emmaus. Do you remember that road to Emmaus? Where there's two disciples that are walking from Jerusalem. They're walking and they're sad. And then Jesus finds them on the way walking sad. And he asks them, Friends, tell me, why are you sad? And they say, don't you know, we, there was a man that we had all hoped in, and we had hoped that he was the Messiah, he was going to bring us to God, but he was killed, and, and even now we heard that some people, something happened to his body, and we're just sad. And, look, and listen to the Lord's, the Lord's response to them in verse 25 of Luke 24. All foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. You're slow to get it. Why aren't you getting it? I have told you and the prophets have told you that the Messiah must first be punished and killed and then rise into his glory. You should not be sad. This is the third day where you should be expecting to see me because I told you three times that I'll rise again. You see, they're being rebuked because they're slow to get it they're slow to take what the Lord has said and apply it to their hearts. The reality, saints, is that what you and I could call confusion and lack of understanding, the Lord Jesus calls a slowness of heart to believe what he has said. That's the proper biblical term for it. It is not confusion. It is, it is slowness of heart to believe. And if you come back to Acts chapter 10 you will see that Peter is confused throughout the narrative. And that confusion is a sign that he is not getting it. He is, not, he is slow of heart to believe. The first sign that we see is that the vision is repeated three times. Come back again. Come to Acts 10 and see. So Peter says this. Peter responds, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice comes to him again a second time. What God has made clean do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. And in verse 17, while Peter was inwardly perplexed, he's confused. Look at verse 19. 
And while Peter was pondering the vision, he's still confused. He doesn't get it. And all this, this illusion, it happens three times. Now imagine this vision happening three times. Everything that proceeded happened three times. Meaning, the, the sheet came down, he's told to kill and eat, and then he says, no, I can't eat, I'm not going to eat because I'm, I'm too holy for that. And then the voice says, what God has called clean, don't dare call common. And then it happens again. The sheet comes down, he's told to kill and eat, and he says, no, 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 I'm too holy for that. And then, it's, and then the voice says again, what God has called clean, do not dare call common. And then it happens a third time. The sheet comes down. He's told to kill and eat. He says, no, 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 I'm too holy for that. What God has called holy, do not dare call common. How many times, Peter, must you be told by God to do something until you do it? This is a bad situation that Peter is in. And this is a struggle in Peter's life to understand this. This is a big issue because even, even while he gets it in verse 28, which we'll see properly next week, he gets it in, in verse 28 and later in chapter 11 and later in chapter 15, we still find that much later on, Paul tells us that this issue is still an issue in Peter's life. In Galatians chapter 2, much later, after the events of the next five chapters of Acts, Peter is still struggling with this issue. Get this, Peter is slow of heart to understand and take to heart what God has said. That's the first reason why Peter is wrong. Here's a second reason why Peter is wrong to respond this way. And I'm going to ask it to you as a question. Who is speaking in the vision? Who's speaking in the vision? Now, go back there to verse, go back to verse 13. So there's, there, oh, verse 12, you know, there's, there's this sheet comes down with all these animals, and they came a voice to him, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Who is speaking? Is it possible, perhaps, maybe the, way, the best way to ask the question is, is it possible that it is not the Lord speaking? Is it possible? Some commentators believe that Peter might be justified to think that maybe this is a temptation from Satan. Okay. Okay, if, if this, let's, let's see if there's anything here that disqualifies this being anybody but God. Where is the sheet coming from in the vision? Heaven. Is it coming from the earth? No, it's coming from heaven. Okay, who dwells in heaven? God. Okay, what hour is it right now? Which is the hour of what? The hour of prayer. Okay. And visions, we know, especially in Luke and literature, throughout the Luke and literature, visions come at the hour of prayer. We just saw that just now with Cornelius, you remember? And we've seen it again with, uh, with Mary, and we saw it with, Zach, with uh, John the Baptist's father. So prayer, visions from God come at the hour of prayer. And what does Peter himself call the person who is speaking in verse 14? Lord. Peter can discern that this is not the devil, this is not some tempting spirit, this is the Lord. So if it is clear that this is the Lord, is, that, that this is the Lord who is speaking, can you tell me when did God's word and command be up for debate? Since when? Tell me, since when is it that when the Lord speaks a command, it is now up for discussion whether or not we are going to obey it? Since when can God, clearly evidencing that he is God, saying, do this, now I can say I'm too holy for that. Or I think better than that. I know better than that. Since when? Since when is that acceptable behavior, even to a Jew? Peter is being obstinate. Peter is being hard. He's not listening. He's being stiff-necked. And it happens three times, and he is told very clearly what God has made clean, do not call common, and he keeps saying no. Keeps not listening. The reality is, dear friends, this is high insubordinate behavior. This is high rebellion. We do not talk back to the Lord when his word clearly tells us what to do. God is revealing his will and provision for Peter. Peter, you're hungry. Kill and eat. 
And Peter thinks he is too holy to accede to God's will. Now I want to take this in a, in a bit of a more pointed direction. Peter is not the first person to receive the revelation of God and of God's will and then decide that God's will is, quite frankly, not as holy as he would like it to be. Peter is not the first person to do that. And that person told God, forget it, and then he went and did his own thing. Can you think of who I'm talking about? Do you remember who that is? Let me, let me give you a hint. He's also famous for being at Joppa. Jonah. Jonah. Do you remember the story of Jonah? Let me remind you the story of Jonah. Jonah was told by God. God revealed himself to Jonah and said, Go to the Ninevites and tell them that I'm going to judge them. And the Lord shows up to him and, and tells Go and tell them of their sin. And Jonah says, No thanks, not for me. And he goes down to Joppa, he takes a ship that goes the opposite direction to Tarshish. Why did he do that? Why would he disobey God so clearly? Well, he says in his own words, he says, I know, God, that you are gracious. I know for a fact that if I go to those people at Nineveh and tell them that you're going to judge them, they will repent, and I know you, you're merciful, you're going you're to forgive them. So forget it. I'm not going to go there. If you want to have mercy on them, have mercy on them without me in the equation. I'm not going to participate because I know you. You see, you see, you see this? I know, this is God's will. God is saying, go and tell them because when God reveals himself to a people and tells them of their sin, it always follows that he's trying to give them mercy, right? Jonah can't handle it. Jonah can't, Jonah can't absolutely does not like the Ninevites and there's no way that by his mouth the Ninevites are going to be saved. No way. And so he goes the opposite direction. The revelation of what God wants is a problem for Jonah. God tells him, this is what I want you to do and he decides that he's holier than that. Let me ask you this question. What do you think is the problem here between Peter and Jonah? What is this sin that Peter and Jonah have? What would you... Because we can see it's a, it's a same set and it happens at the same place. It's, a, it's Jonah. In fact, uh, uh, it's, 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 Peter is at Joppa, at the right place where, where Jonah was. It's the same set. What is the sin? How would you describe the sin? What are, what are some words you'd use to describe this evil? Is it arrogance? Do you think? Well, perhaps. Certainly, it is arrogant for a person to be told by God what to do and then decide to speak back to him. How much of an inflated... Who do you think you are? To talk back to God and tell him that his assessment of this food is wrong. Certainly. It is, it is, you can say it's arrogant. And certainly for, for Jonah as well, to be the arbitrator on which nations can be forgiven as if he sits on some heavenly council. Certainly you'd be right to think it's arrogant. Let's take it another direction. Is it ethnic superiority? Or what we can maybe colloquially call racism or tribalism? Well, of course. There's no way that you can say that Jonah's dislike of the Ninevites had nothing to do with the fact that they were Ninevites and not Jews. Whatever it is, tribalism, whatever you want to call it, there's an ethnic superiority there. And because he disliked them, he felt that they were not worthy of God's mercy. And let me also say that it's exactly the same thing with Peter. You see, the... The nature of food at this time in Palestine, especially at this time, in, in this, this world, in, in this, Palest this, this Israel nation that had Gentiles all over the place and the, and the devout Jews, the nature of food was that it was an identifier of who you worship and who you associate with. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Let me illustrate this. In in, in apartheid South Africa, the way that people were separated was just on skin color, right? You see a person, this is a white man, you belong that side. This is a black man, you belong that side, right? Very simple. It's, that's the identifier of a daily who you are, who you associate with, 
what we think of you in the society. Well, in this time, it, food was that identified. It was not skin color, because they all largely generally looked alike, but it was food that was, the, that was the identifier. If somebody eats a rabbit, that person is unclean, and, and Jews do not go to their house. Depending on what you eat and what you do not eat, it depends. It, 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 that, that, that determines where you go to eat. That determines who you buy from, from the shops, who you can sell to. That determines whether or not you can go worship. This, this, this thing of eating was a daily thing of an identifier that this person is clean and this person isn't. When Peter is speaking about, this is not just about food, as we'll see when we come to verse 28. It's about people. It's about that there are people who just because they eat rabbit's feet, or just because they eat, uh, you know, je- uh, what, what's a fish that doesn't have scales? Something that doesn't have, starfish or something. Whatever doesn't have scales. Or just because they, they, they eat certain birds, or just perhaps because they eat lizards, they are considered to be unclean and can't come near to the house of worship. And Peter says, I will not be identified with those people because I won't even visit them. I so do not want to be even associated with those people. You saw when we saw that in verse 28, I can't even associate with those people. That's what Peter is saying here. It's an identifier of which group is superior to which. Well, whatever this disease is, so we see that there's elements of arrogance in here, and we see that there's elements of ethnic superiority in here. Whatever this disease is, I want to call it, just because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex thing, I'm going to give it a term, and actually I wanted to change the sermon title once I had this idea, to Joppa's disease. Because it was revealed that Joppa, this is Joppa's disease. Symptoms of, the, of Joppa's disease include slowness to listen to the Lord, slowness to change a doctrinal position when the scripture is clear, a decided conviction to stick to what I know and what I want, a favoring of how we've always done things rather than question whether or not the things are in line with God's word, God's word comes, but because of my cultural or religious background or both, I will not change quickly. Especially if it involves something so massive and so daily, and so daily as what I eat. Something that involves my entire life, not just a small doctrinal thing there, but something that if I agree to it, changes everything that I believe and how I act, certainly. Do you have Joppa's disease here this morning? Are you suffering from Joppa's disease? Are you slow to believe what God has said? Or quick to set aside verses in the scriptures that you do not like? Especially if they challenge the things that you like to normally do. Or how you normally want to live. I'll make... Uh, I want to preface what I'm about to say with this. Okay? I want to preface it very strongly because people might misunderstand. I love the Puritans. Okay? The 1689 that we hold to as a ch- at this church is a Puritan confession, and I believe personally it is the most accurate description of biblical doctrine ever put to paper. So I, I just want to say that. I, I love the Puritans. I, if I had half of their holiness, I feel I would be fine. They were wonderful men. Okay, that's my preference, okay? Got it? Now, don't cut the clip now. (laughs) Okay. Now, at this conference that Michael and I were at, there was a presentation by a brother, a wonderful brother, who's, who's an expert on the Puritans. He was writing a paper on the Puritans. And specifically, his focus is on the Puritans and their worship. So Puritans were these, um, religious, this group of Christians in, uh, in, uh, in, in uh, the Br- Great Britain uh, around the 17th, 17th, 16th century. Um, and 
he was arguing, he was, he was in this paper, he was arguing how the Puritans were wanting to reform worship, wanting to get worship back to where God wanted to be. And he had all these things that the Puritans did, and it was quite, it was, we praise God for it. I mean, even as we're talking about the, you know, the Reformation Day and all of this, the Puritans did a lot of work to try and reform worship from the excesses of the Anglican Church at the time. There were all kinds of weird things that they were doing, and so the Puritans were saying, no, we need to do exactly what God says. And so Michael and I have had this question in different forms. And so we go up to the guy afterwards and we ask him, hey, we, we, this is the one area that we struggle with in understanding Puritan theology when it comes to worship. What do the Puritans say about the physical manifestations that are found in the fifth book of the Psalms regarding worship? What do the Puritans say? How would they have defended why they don't seem, when they were reforming worship, when they were saying, let's go back to what God says about worship, why did they almost entirely exclude the fifth book of the Psalms? The Psalms that, that have all those verses, you know, shout to the Lord, sing with lyre and harp, you know, all these loud things. You know, when you, when you see those last couple of Psalms, they're, they're very loud if you read them, right? Have you ever read some of these Psalms at the last? They're very loud. Shout, sing to the Lord with joy, make melody with all kinds of harps and lyres, all kinds of different instruments. Why, why did the what would the thinking be about by the Puritans as to why we shouldn't do that? And he said he thinks that the argument that the Puritans would give for that is that the physical manifestations, that joyous aspect of worship has been abrogated in the Old Testament as, as with all the other things of the Old Testament. Meaning that the joy of singing with clapping and different instruments, all of that belongs to sacri the sacrificial element of the Old Testament worship. It is not a part of our New Testament worship. And my jaw dropped, <laughs> okay, because th that makes absolutely no sense. The, throughout the, the joy, in fact, because of the New Testament, joy is even amplified more. I mean, Paul says rejoice always. I say rejoice. Does he mean that we rejoice and only when we come into the church service? Then we come in here and we're somber and serious. And then afterwards we go out and rejoice again? It does not fit with the theology of the New Testament. In fact, the Puritans themselves in our confession say it very clearly that we are to rejoice. We meet on the Lord's day because it is a day of joy. The, 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 the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is a joyous time. But the Puritans, when they were reforming worship, they just focused on all the psalms that are somber and serious. <laughs> now, I, again, I love the Puritans, but I can say of my heroes that they had a blind spot there. It might be cultural, it might be somehow, but they had a blind spot there because you can't just take a whole book of the psalms, the whole section of the psalms, and chuck it out because it does not appeal to your cultural sensitivities. Let me ask you some, now you're laughing at the Puritans, but I'm coming to you now. Okay. <laughs> Leave the Puritans alone. That was just an illustration. Let's come to you now. Let me ask you some pointed questions, dear friends. And here's the framework of my questions. Here's the two, two questions that are a framework for the questions that I have here in specifics. Here's the framework. Number one, how easily do you change your opinion when Scripture confronts it? How easily? And not only change your position, but militate against your previous opinion when God's word has shown that it is invalid. How easily do you entirely turn from a position that you once held if the scripture clearly says it is wrong? Second, do you know that moment when you're speaking to someone about a particular doctrine of scripture and you refuse to give in. And it's not because the argument now, like they're, they're clearly winning the argument, the argument, they've got the weight of scripture on their side. But whether you just can't give in because you know that if you give in, it means that you have to admit that everything that you're doing or the way that you've been thinking or all the people that you've taught about this, you have been wrong. You know that moment when you just can't give in? Like the person is, is giving you verse after verse. Scripture, principle of the scripture, principle, and when you're like, um, um, no, you're, uh, you, you know that moment. Yeah, you've been there. <laughs> that moment you need to be watch out for because at that moment you are showing signs of Joppa's disease, 
slowness to say and agree with God's assessment. God can say something is clean, but you are still saying it is common and unclean. God has proclaimed his word. It's clean. It's fine. But when you're still stuck in holding this, okay, that's the framework of my questions. Now, here are some pointed, specific application questions for us here. When the Bible says women are to submit to their husband, ladies, how do you respond? Gentlemen, when the scripture says you ought to be gentle and kind to your opponents, no matter who they are, how do you respond? Ladies, when the scripture makes it clear that even in the summer, your dress should not be dictated by filthy fashion trends, but by a godly modesty that reflects a humble heart, how many times must you hear that before you put that into practice? Peter was three times. He still, not, he still didn't get it. You need to hear it four times, five times. How many more times must you hear the Scripture's ethic of how you ought to dress before it changes your wardrobe? Gentlemen, when the game is on, at the same time someone needs your help, and you have to choose between the two, how do you respond? When the scripture tells you, gentlemen, that your job as men is to be those who serve to the dereliction of your own desires, putting aside what you want, how do you respond? How many times must you hear that you must think of others more important than yourself before you apply it? Children in the house, look at me. How do you respond and handle your parents in light of the scripture's admonition to obey them, not sometimes, but all the time? How do you, how do you handle your parents? If I were to ask your parents now, children, teenagers, children, however, if you're considered a child, you're living in someone else's house. How do you handle that person? Would they say to me, if I were to ask them, that your life is that that is marked by saying yes, what you say I will do. Please forgive me for not doing what you do, what you said I should do. I'm going to walk by the law that you have set in this house. How many times must you hear children obey your parents in the Lord until you actually live that way? When true religion is to care for the needy, how do you structure your life to that end? When James says true religion is to look after the needs of those who are in need, how do you structure your life? Is your life about more and more bling? When the scripture is clear on evil, do you allow yourself to watch evil and enjoy it in the name of entertainment? When the Lord says, let your yes be yes and let your no be no, do you consistently avoid committing to the word that you said you would do? Do you have Joppa's disease this morning? The summary question. You see, we can keep going with this, right? I can just add more. I just said, let me have mercy and not keep going here. We can keep going with this. Okay? Slow of heart to believe, not listening, even and, and being selective of what we will obey at a particular time. God revealing his will to us, but we do not respond in the way that we should. The summary question of this entire sermon is this, dear friends. Are there areas in my life where influenced by the culture around me or my religious background or both that I am resistant to change in the light of God's word? Are there areas of my life where I'm not changing because I'm being influenced by other voices and not God's word? God's word is clear. It's not even debatable on these issues. It's very clear. 
Jesus has made it very clear to Peter. God made it very clear to Jonah what he wants. It wasn't the clarity of the issue. There was a problem. There was an issue right here. If you find in yourself that disposition, listen to God's response to Peter's resistance in verse 15. The voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. That right there is an opportunity to repent. So the first time Peter is given an opportunity to repent from what he has just said, God has called this clean. Do not call it common. Repent. Repent. Change your ways today. Repent. Find whatever it is that the Holy Spirit has been dealing with you on, saying, this is the thing that I've been saying to you a thousand times and you're not listening. Repent today. Why wait? What God has called clean, do not dare call common. And for those of you who are here and are unbelievers, and God has been speaking to you, Time and time again, for a long time, telling you the kingdom of God is at hand. Your sins need to be dealt with and you refuse because you think you're smarter, wiser, you know more, you know better. You're wrong. What God has called clean, do not call common. If God says to you, come to me, I will give you eternal life for free, forever. A forgiveness of sins. Stop resisting and obey. Come to Him. Well, may God help us all to repent. May God heal us from Joppa's disease, all of us. May we all grow to be more attentive, more soft, be teachable as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, it is a challenge for me to preach such a message. It is clear that I need it myself. Father, you know. You know me more than these people do. So please forgive me or, or remove any, anything that I might have said that might make these people think that I am better than Peter. Help us, Lord, all of us. Heal us from Joppa's disease. Heal our hearts. Give us, like David says, a heart that is willing to do your will. A heart that is soft. A teachable heart. Whether young or old, whether new to the faith, or have been stuck in our ways for a long time, Lord, refresh us. Give us a youthful heart. like Renew our strength like the eagle's. Make us a holy people. May we not, as much as we love our Apostle Peter, as much as we know you love him and we're long-suffering with him, may we not follow in his footsteps in this. Help us, Lord. In Christ's name, amen.